Hello, and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We're all the way down to number 12 on the list. Which means that on this episode, we'll be discussing Bernard Herrmann's score to the 1958 psychological thriller Vertigo. Vertigo was written for the screen by Alec Koppel and Samuel A. Taylor, based on the novel D'Entre les Morts by Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narcejac. It was produced by Herbert Coleman and Alfred Hitchcock and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Andy, what is it like to watch Vertigo? It's creepy. <laughs> Vertigo features Alfred Hitchcock's signature elements of mystery, thrills, a great deal of suspense, and a mysterious blonde woman with whom the protagonist becomes obsessed. It stars Kim Novak as that mysterious blonde woman and as a different non-blonde woman who may or may not be the same woman. And it stars James Stewart as Detective Scotty Ferguson, whose obsession with Kim Novak's character forms the arc of the story. It also stars Barbara Bel Geddes as Scotty's long-suffering platonic friend Midge, and a special appearance by Alfred Hitchcock as Man Walking Across the Frame in that one shot. So Scotty Ferguson, ex-detective, left the force because he has fear of heights, is called up by an old college acquaintance who suspects his wife of being possessed by a ghost and wants Scotty to trail her. And in so doing, he falls in love with her. And when she ultimately commits what seems to be a ghost-induced suicide, he is haunted by the image of her and is drawn into a spiral of obsession in trying to recapture it. Good enough? You know what? Let's call that good enough. We said right off the bat that this is a spoiler-filled show. Yeah. And this is a pretty spoiler-based movie, so do we want to give an extra warning on this one? All right, well, let this serve as an extra warning, but I agree. Yeah, if you've never seen Vertigo, then you don't know some stuff about what happens in Vertigo that we're going to start talking about, and it'll spoil the spoiler. Yeah, fair enough. We have to talk about it. And I think in this case, knowing that spoiler, <laughs> it really spoils it a lot. Actually, I think it really is detrimental to the movie to know the secret during the part when you're not supposed to know the secret. Uh, why are you saying that? I'm guessing it's because you feel like the pacing doesn't serve the big story. It only serves the fake out story or something like that. Yeah. Once you know what the fake out is, it kind of doesn't work in reverse. I mean, it's a really cockamamie scheme this guy came up with to murder his wife, which here, since we've already given the extra spoiler warning, let me just go ahead and spell it out, right? Here's the plan. He's going to have this other woman who's not his wife pretend to be his wife and then have Jimmy Stewart follow her around until he becomes obsessed with her and then also half convinced that maybe she's possessed by a ghost so that when she plants the idea in his head to take her to this one specific old creepy California mission, he takes her there, but then because of his fear of heights, he can't follow her all the way up to the top of the stairs in the tower so that when the guy throws his real wife out the window and not the fake wife. I mean, it's a long way to go, right? I guess you got to give him credit for being creative with this cockamamie convoluted plan. I mean, it is a cockamamie convoluted plan, but the bare bones version of it, I feel, is a legitimate thriller plot, which is that he hires him on false pretenses to, as he says at the end, be a made-to-order witness. Yeah. 
I, I didn't feel like that part of the movie is so ridiculous that I can't take it seriously. I mean, no denying it's a very, very strange movie. Well, it definitely works better not knowing that. You know, when you're unsure what is going on and you, along with his character, are wondering, is it actually possible that there's this supernatural possession thing happening? And, you know, he's skeptical and the audience is skeptical and maybe it really is. And, you know, watching it through that way is a so much more satisfying watch, I think. Well, I will defend the movie as interesting even when you know where it's going. Yeah, it is. I mean, you could say a lot of things about Vertigo. That's, I think, part of its staying power is that Mm -hmm. it's twisty and weird and eats its own tail. And people love that stuff. Critics love that stuff. (laughs) You can go in a lot of different directions with it. And I am totally happy to grant it all of that. I don't feel any compulsion to be like, but it doesn't make any sense. So it doesn't need, you know, (laughs) it makes enough sense to be Vertigo. (laughs) All right. I'll buy that. I'll take that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Andy, when we did E.T., you just asked me flat out off the top what I thought of the score. So I think it would be good to do the same thing here. Let me just ask you, what do you think of the score to Vertigo? Um, I think it's great. I think that was your answer for E.T. <laughs> and that is how I feel about Vertigo. I think it's yeah. great. I also think it's great. It's a completely different animal from E.T. And it's great in sort of a completely different way. But it's equally responsible for the special atmosphere of its movie. Like this movie has a very distinct atmosphere and and vibe to it. It's kind of like no other Hitchcock movie and no other movie really. And this music is the reason why. Yeah, I think the music in this movie has its own psychological complexity to it that you can sort of analyze the thought processes behind the music Uh, I think there's just as much meat there as to analyze the underlying psychology of the drama. Yeah, this movie, Vertigo, has such a tradition of being analyzed deeply for psychological layers. And some of them are obviously written into it. But a lot of that, I think, is just a product of the music making everything seem pregnant with possible meaning. And that I attribute to the craft and artistry of Bernard Herrmann. It's not an accident that it feels deep. Yeah, well, it is deep. And yeah, I think one of the great things about this score is that the score also really attracts analysis. We were lucky enough to get to look at the notated score manuscript. This is a score that really rewards following along because you can see sort of the construction to it. You can see these blocks and patterns that emerge. You can just sort of watch it in action. I think we've been sort of noting that for a score to be something really great to belong on this list of greats, it has to be for a movie that has particular use for music beyond what most movies would. And this movie really does. It's really... Uh, I read a thing where Hitchcock was talking about the intentions for the movie before it was made, and he said, uh, he said, an audience sitting there looking at this picture has no idea at all that this is a murder story. Up until the final scene, it should be a strange mood love story. Hmm. And I feel like this strange mood being the purpose is... It's something that you need music to create. Yeah. This movie needs a score. Like, E.T. needed a score, and it needed a score to really sing what was happening in the movie. 
that's not necessarily true of all great movies, you know. Yeah, there's movies where people talk about what their feelings are. There's movies right. where what goes on in the movie uh, is the point of the movie. But this is a movie where the strange mood mm-hmm. is the point of the movie determines why you're watching any of it. And I want to just say at the outset, you know, this is the first time we're talking about Bernard Herrmann. We will talk about him again later. But he is as original and distinctive a compositional voice as movie music ever had. His style is somehow, like, hard and soft at the same time. It's both severe and rhapsodic and I, mm. you know i don't think i can think of anyone else who combined those flavors in quite the same way mm. it imparts something really special to the movies that have his scores and this feels like the movie that had the greatest use for it because the movie kind of is a mind bender movie and uh strange mood love story at the same time and uh there's just something perfect about herman's style for that yeah i like that hard and soft it's this sculptural flow of uh you know imposing curves yeah it's like made out of rock but smooth but it's supple yeah yeah supple rock (laughs) is a good band name uh Yeah, so I think that what's particular about this unique style that he had was that it is built around a repetitive, modular structure that he can take these very small, motivic ideas and stack them and move them around and it gets to have a sort of obsessive effect. I think particularly in this movie, he is pounding away with these obsessively repeated little thoughts sort of the impression of like building out of you know legos or something like yeah you have one brick that repeats over and over and then you can make different things out of it but it's it all looks like a construction out of bricks definitely turn to that in all different kinds of movies not only movies about obsession so sometimes the effect of that technique doesn't have that feeling it can be like a pleasant wallpaper and you hardly even notice that it's made out of these repetitions but i agree with you that in this movie it sort of comes to the fore that it's kind of can't shake these little ideas out of its head in the last one, you quoted a witticism of David Raxon, again, a composer who we'll be talking about later in this series. Mm-hmm. And I remembered something that I read him saying about Herman, quoting Raxon in an interview. When I was showing Vertigo to a bunch of my students at UCLA, a kid said to me, listen, when Kim Novak walks through the church on the way to the graveyard, there's an organ playing. Do you know the name of that piece? I said, no, it's something by Benny Herman, but I know the name of the church. It's called Our Lady of Perpetual Sequences. (laughs) Benny had this great gift for drawing a diagonal line from the bottom left to the top right of the score and putting two dots on both sides, end quote. Two dots referring to the repeat sign in music notation. Yeah, the sign that means if there's 32 bars on a page, it means play the previous 32 bars again. Yeah. I wanted to save this for the actual episode about David Raxon, but... In fact, I was a student in David Raxon's class, not at UCLA, at USC, and he said that very thing to me. Oh, did he? I guess it's one of his proudest jokes. Yeah. Raxon is here saying it obviously sort of snidely, like, 
Hermann gets away with just repeating stuff, but I think it's worth taking sort of seriously when he calls it a great gift. I feel like it takes taste and sensitivity to put a repeat sign in the right place, and Hermann is like a genius of vamps, of things that repeat over and over. Yeah. To me, it's always satisfying. It doesn't feel like a cheat. It doesn't feel lazy. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I think it's so remarkable how effective it is and how much mileage he gets out of, yeah, these slightly subtly different repetitions of the exact same stuff. So the joke about perpetual sequences, besides sounding like the name of a church, a sequence is when you take a little phrase in music and you repeat it while moving up or down a scale basically just a moving repetition mm-hmm. that basically describes good majority of how Hermann constructs textures. It certainly describes this piece that's playing on the church organ. <laughs> that's right. Same exact figure just going all the way down. That church organ moment, which is sort of a hint of source music, even though we don't see an organ, and probably there's no one playing the organ in an empty church. (laughs) There's not just always organ music just happening in a church? Maybe. I don't know. That's certainly the principle I use whenever I have to accompany an improv scene that takes place in a church. I just assume, well, there's just organ happening, right? Yeah, maybe there's a loop. Someone's (laughs) put on a tape. But anyway, in the movie, that little snippet of organ music comes as part of this long, elaborate trailing sequence where he is trailing her in the first section of the movie. And each sort of scenelet that constitutes that sequence is internally kind of repetitive and kind of working over a simple cell of material. And indeed, all of them are sort of interrelated, but they're each distinct. Like, okay, he's in the car on the streets. That has this sound to it. You hear eight bars or something, you start to get a sense, all right, I see kind of the rules he's using to generate this material. Then he goes into an alley, he goes into the church, he goes out into the graveyard, Mm -hmm. and here in the graveyard, a different algorithm is generating this music, and it has a different set of instruments. Herman, like, picks an ensemble that corresponds to a given scene, And he picks kind of a snippet, and he picks a way that it'll be handed around. I think in the graveyard it's... um... Well, in the graveyard it's these very high violins on top of just some bass clarinets. You know, instrumentation is so crucial to his technique, and by just picking high strings and low clarinets, he's done all of this work already. Yeah. And then it's really just a matter of kind of filling out that score. Right, those are the colors of paint that he put on his palette for this cue, and yeah, he's just going to paint out with them. I just think he was incredibly gifted at this thing. It can sound so simple to listen to that and think, well, I've heard of bass clarinets, and I've heard of violins playing in the upper register, so those are just two letters on his typewriter and they're sort of arbitrary but in fact they're not he just had a gift for getting at the value of instrumental timbres
The next musical sequence that we hear after that scene in the graveyard is when Kim Novak goes into the art gallery in the Palace of the Legion of Honor in San Francisco, and she's looking at this portrait of Carlotta Valdez, which is the name of her uh, supposed ancestor who might be possessing her. And there's a rhythmic element that I'll get to in a second, but on top of this rhythmic element, it's this very simple parallel third melody, and we first hear it in the flutes. There's two flutes playing these parallel thirds, and it goes through this little turn. And then the same exact thing over the same exact accompaniment happens on clarinets. Same notes, slightly different musical timbre. Then, same exact notes happen played on the horns this time with mutes. And now the strings are doing a little bit of extra work on top of that same series of parallel thirds that we heard. And then comes back around, and now we hear it on the flutes and the clarinets together. So now he's mixing those two colors. Again, it's just this repetition of the same material. But yeah, he's getting so much mileage out of it. This was his big uh, innovation in a sense. You know, movie scoring wasn't really done like this previous to Herman. And, you know, minimalism didn't exist yet. The idea that you could do a zillion repetitions and have sort of an evolving sense of meaning, Mm -hmm. it wasn't a going thing in composition. This is really something that he very idiosyncratically, a very strong personality arrived at this. And it just works so beautifully with a picture. It lives in a very distinctive place in your experience of watching the movie. You hear the work that the music is doing. You hear the kind of logic by which it is organically turning the idea about, looking at all sides of it, trying different combinations of it. But your attention doesn't go all the way to it because it is so organic, because it seems so necessary. I think it's important to point out that this whole sequence we just described, all of this plays continuously. It's like a 15-minute stretch of the movie during which there is no dialogue. Hitchcock has completely given the reins over to Herman here. So you use the word necessary, that it feels like it is a necessary part of the exposition of what the audience is witnessing. It really is necessary. This wouldn't be a thing. This wouldn't be storytelling if this music wasn't there evolving and shaping the space in these ways that we've been saying. Yeah, I mean, he can look at a series of shots or different scenes that become a sequence. He has this powerful instinct for, as you say, shaping it, giving form. Or on the other hand, sometimes looking at a continuity, there's a shot later where you see like 15 seconds of just car driving toward the camera. It's not really a useful or meaningful shot. You can't see the characters and it pans slightly to follow the car. And Herman writes music to give it shape and meaning. And while you're watching it, you feel like that shape and meaning is intrinsic to this shot and it's a worthwhile shot. this music you're hearing now this is just one long shot of the two cars of scotty trailing madeline 
you know, they come from the distance, they slowly pull past the camera, and then the camera finally pans to the side and we see that we are arriving at the Golden Gate Bridge. But all of this movement and all of this meaning is something that Hermann is inserting, or, or rather sort of calling out of the picture. Hmm. Like, that's the inverse of the technique where he takes a whole series of shots and says, okay, but we're kind of in one stable moment here. It's like an editorial impulse. Yeah. Well, again, I think that goes back to Hitchcock trusting Hermann so much. Hitchcock was so famously controlling, hyper-controlling of every aspect of his movie, but he really didn't tell Hermann what to do because he knew that Hermann would get the point. He would get the story and what was important to the story and the moods that were important to the story. So yeah, he had that kind of editor's instinct, and I think Hitchcock knew what he had in him in that way. Yeah. Did you see that one of the few bits of Hitchcock's music notes that survives is something that he wrote to the effect of, you know, in this scene, keep the sound effects down. Mr. Herman might have something to say here. Uh huh. And that's sort of the extent of the planning he did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I noted a couple of spots where you can absolutely hear the sound effects, the production noise getting dialed up and down to make way for the music. Like when we first see Kim Novak's character in Ernie's restaurant, as the camera is panning across the restaurant scene, we hear, you know, restaurant walla, mm-hmm. as it's called, the clatter of plates and silverware and dinner conversation. And then you can hear the fader move down. You can hear all of that sound get taken away as the music comes in. And now the music is telling the story. example in the other direction is after she's jumped into the bay and she's drying off in his apartment and they have this kind of romantic dialogue with each other the music gets to the end of what the music had to say the piece ends here you better have some coffee i think it's still warm you're terribly direct in your questions and then i'm sorry i didn't mean to be rude you're not um, now you hear the street noise come fading up as though it was holding back. The street noise was being respectful uh, of the music because the music was more important. That's the sort of thing I wish that more modern filmmaking could do is just recognize when the music is more important than the sound effects. Yeah, that the world the music puts you into is a better world than one where you're tracking the presence of a highway outside. Right. Andy, have you ever driven around San Francisco? I've been in a car driving around San Francisco. Did you listen to the driving around San Francisco music from Vertigo as you did? Uh, No, the other people in the car weren't nerds. (laughs) I did. I've driven around San Francisco quite a bit (laughs) listening to the score to Vertigo. Alone. Well, alone and with... I made some other people do that with me. (laughs) I see. Well, I wasn't in the driver's seat. I wasn't running this show. Yeah. I might well have imposed something absurd like that had I been in charge. (laughs) How did it fit? Did it work? It works so well. <laughs> it really made me feel like I was driving around the streets of San Francisco. <laughs> now, if you put that on while you're in L.A., does it make you feel like you're driving around the streets of San Francisco? I would never do that. You would never try. It's just inappropriate. I would never. No, he can't. But whenever I get to San Francisco, I'm like, aha, now now is the time for this. 
Yeah, did you see that one of uh, Herman's comments about the movie is that it shouldn't have taken place in San Francisco? He was very proud of this score, and he admired the movie. He thought well of it, and he was very outspoken. He said when he didn't think things were good. Yeah, that's another thing that Raxon had to say about Benny Herman was that he wasn't the easiest guy to get along with. Oh, everyone had that to say about him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he had no patience for people that he thought were wrong. Right. And was very loud about it. Anyway, he said in some interview that he thought that this movie shouldn't have taken place in San Francisco, which is so, you know, sunny, doesn't have anything to do with the spirit of the movie, and shouldn't have starred Jimmy Stewart because he's, you know, the wrong type. Well, a lot of people have said that. That in his mind, he imagined it being like a sultry New Orleans story, and that's what he was imagining when he was writing the music. Huh. Well, so take that. Uh, sorry, uh, I'm going to associate it with San Francisco. <laughs> For a good reason. I think it works terrifically in San Francisco. I think they might have a point about Jimmy Stewart in this movie. And in fact, the movie didn't do so well at the box office or critically when it was released. And Hitchcock blamed Jimmy Stewart because he thought it was too old to carry off this romantic lead anymore. He was 50. I think this is the last Hitchcock movie that he's in because of that. Well, it really changes the meaning of the movie if you imagine it with an actual viable romantic partner for Kim Novak rather than sort of... Somebody who's literally twice her age. An older guy who's just like a voyeuristic, obsessive creep. Yeah. Which is what the movie is. becomes about this obsession of the voyeur rather than the obsession of a pure lover. That's true. The way the movie worked out, the movie that is now considered one of the all-time great movies and has since 2012 is the number one movie on the famous sight and sound poll list, I think has to do with the particular combinations of things. I, you know, if it weren't sort of a hollow-eyed Jimmy Stewart, uh, I think the movie might not have the strange, dreamy, queasy quality that it has. Yeah, I'll buy that too. Because listen, I, I love Jimmy Stewart and he's great in this movie. As the trailer says... James Stewart as you've never seen him before. Yeah. And that's kind of true. Sure, you've never seen his disembodied head on top of some psychedelic (laughs) spirals. Yeah, with that lick of hair blowing in the wind. (laughs) No, I had never seen Jimmy Stewart that way before seeing this movie. Lucky you. Okay, so listen, I think now at this point, I think we have to lay out the musical themes that are in this movie. I think that the motivic musical ideas, and there are at least two important ones that I want to cover, I think they have such an important part to play in shaping the story and the story that the music tells. And I think that they're united by a particular musical technique that I want to talk about. Mm Mm-hmm. So this movie is called Vertigo, and it's about, you know, the fear of heights and dizziness and the concept of height and falling. And in music, there is this thing that is called, that is termed a suspension, Mm -hmm. which refers to a note that is hanging above where it should be, essentially. The ear is very accustomed to hearing notes grouped together into chords. So here are the notes of a chord. They go together together. When you play them together, they sound like a cohesive unit. This is an A-flat major chord. Here are the notes in it. This note is not one of the notes that comprise an A-flat major chord. This is outside of that chord, and therefore when you play it on top of that chord, there's a tension. You feel this potential energy inherent in this note, this note that is hanging Where it doesn't belong, it needs to give off that potential energy and resolve down to the note that is in the chord. There's this sense of gravity, of an actual downward force when you hear a suspension. I feel like he has built his entire score, basically, around 
suspended notes intentionally because it's his way of creating an artificial gravity. He is creating an actual downward force that the listener hears and feels by hanging all of these notes over the chord and then letting the note fall down to the note that is in the chord. So I picked that A-flat major chord to exemplify this idea of a suspension because that is a chord that gets used for the main theme, the, the theme that you hear in the main title sequence and the theme that winds up becoming this really important operative theme that is played obsessively. In the second half of the movie. In the second half of the movie, exactly. Yeah, and I think the theme is about obsession. You know, you can call it the love theme or the obsession theme or, you know, something like that. The fixation. Mm -hmm. It starts with this big hanging suspension, like this elastic band that gets set up stretching between this note and the chord that it's on top of, and then the band pulls it down. In fact, in this melody, it pulls it down with enough momentum that it proceeds down further through another chord. It always starts out with this big suspended note. Yeah, and I think that the metaphor and the etymological link between suspension and fear of heights in the movie is more than just cute. I think you're totally onto something there, but I also want to say that the feeling you get listening to a suspension sometimes doesn't map directly, at least for me, doesn't map directly to a spatial metaphor, but it still has a sense of incompleteness, yearning for completeness, yeah. which I think is vital in this movie in ways that don't always have to do with the up and down mapping. Fair enough. The whole second half of the movie is Jimmy Stewart wanting to achieve this vision that's in his head, wanting it to be a real person, wanting to get to a place he can't quite get to. And that, to me, is what this suspension, especially that D over A flat suspension, but any suspension, also has this feeling of, oh, I both know what the resolution of this is and I don't have it. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll wear the darn clothes if you want me to, if, if you'll just, just like me. It can't matter to you. It's a pull. I agree. It doesn't necessarily have to mean a downward force, but it's definitely a force. Yeah, the important thing about it is that it is this elastic tension and a pull. And okay, so now let me go back and observe. I said that there are suspensions all over the score. Well, if you go back to now the theme for Madeline, which is Kim Novak's character for the first half of the movie, when she is pretending to be this guy, Gavin Elster's wife, Madeline, for the benefit of Jimmy Stewart. This kind of pretense of this elegant, beautiful, somewhat distant and sophisticated woman, she gets this theme, and this is the melody that starts playing in Ernie's Restaurant, as I was saying. Mm -hmm. It's such a great entrance. The music waits, waits. There's this beautiful pan across the restaurant scene, and the music waits until the camera just starts to push in on Kim Novak's back. And as soon as the motion starts in that direction, then this beautiful melody starts to play.
basically a suspension at the end of every phrase. The first phrase lands on top of a chord and then moves down. The next phrase lands on top of a chord and then it goes down. And then lands on top of another chord pretty much every time. Like every two bars there's a suspension that resolves. And then what happens after that in the score is, yeah, he goes on this episode of following her around. And maybe I should put it in here that I don't think I would hire this guy to tail somebody because... <laughs> he doesn't do a very good job. <laughs> he like just drives right behind her the whole time and then parks his car right behind hers. Lucky for him, A, she's in a trance and possessed by a ghost, and B, <laughs> is pretending. Both of those work to his advantage. Right. <laughs> if I was a spy... Uh, I would make my tail pretty easily if it was Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> anyway, as he's driving along, he distills this idea of this phrase that the notes go up a little bit and then land on a suspension and resolve. That's the exact phrase that gets repeated through all of these machinations. That's the phrase that gets passed around and around and turned a little bit this way and that. The chords are slightly different. But each time, it is about getting to the suspended note and resolving it. Further on in that same sequence, when he drives up to the church, she drives up to the church and he parks his car right behind hers. The music now, it's sort of boiling it down, down, down. And now we're left with just those suspensions. Now the notes surrounding the suspension, the note leading up to the suspensions, have sort of boiled off, and now it's just a series of two-note suspension figures that go on and on. But you're agreeing that those two notes, you can follow how they were derived from, and thus still in some way are the notes of Madeline's theme. Yes, yes, for sure. that the music is constantly working itself through. Mm -hmm. and Yeah, I said it boils it down, absolutely. That's right. It's a precipitate of her theme or whatever. Reduction? A reduction. Yeah. So you agree with my sort of grand theory of this score that I was going to see if you agreed with because I wasn't sure if I'd completely convinced myself. Okay, because I have a grand theory of this score too, but I want to hear yours. My grand theory of the score is that the theme is a two-note step. And it finds different forms over the course of the movie. In the first moments of the score, at the beginning of the prelude, you hear this vertigo figure that we can maybe talk about a little more later. And then... In the bass, you hear... Two notes. And those two notes yes, become these suspensions in the Madeline theme, and then you watch them, yes, get reduced down to just sort of being two notes, and then they have other forms. You know, you sort of watch Madeline's theme, you see it there in that statement that we've played a couple of times, and it sounds like, well, maybe that's a complete melody, but actually the way it's used in most instances is that it's just undergoing this constant change and development. 
it's a genuinely Wagnerian operatic way of using a motif, which is that it works out its own fate before your eyes. It follows its dramatic destiny, and that is to change and to evolve. Once they have gotten to know each other, now they're sort of deliberately going on a date together, going on an outing. And when they're driving to the forest, you hear Madeline's tune that we've gotten used to, but you hear it kind of with the freedom to go in different directions, which mm -hmm. he's been granting himself throughout. Right, he's established that. He's established that it's loose, it doesn't have a fixed form. That is fluid, yeah. And then in its fluidity, it arrives at mm -hmm. this, what we've been calling a second theme. They aren't opposed themes. Now they're the head and the tail of this sort of snaking melody. Or, you know, think of all of the places where you hear a figure sort of of the form of da-da-da-da. You know, two notes going up and then two notes above it going down. That figure, which is sort of neither here nor there in terms of whose theme it is or what motif exactly it is, right. it is another way of reducing Madeline's theme. Mm -hmm. But then it turns into, it has this sort of manic waltz form sometimes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's this building kind of background that is working its way up to the climaxes of the obsession theme. Yeah, he just rings every possible ounce of connective tissue out of this tiny idea and, you know, nose-to-tail cooking. He is using the entire animal, and it's a small animal. Yeah, I think it's not so much that he's using the whole animal as that it really, I can't think of a way to flip that metaphor exactly, but like these are cells and many different kind of animals emerge out <laughs> of these cells, you know? It's, All right, now I'm grossed out. It's disgusting. <laughs> well, anyway, you know, talking about Max Steiner and King Kong, I said, well, this sounds kind of like Tristan and Isolde in a very, very watered down caricature version. Yeah. This score fairly overtly alludes to Tristan and Isolde as a model, but the sophistication of how much he's taking from Wagner is much, much higher. And the thing we're talking about now is kind of the essence of that, that Wagner's so-called leitmotif technique was to associate little bits of material with characters or objects or themes in his operas and then have them 
grow and combine and be threaded into longer melodies and evolve over the course of the drama to match the drama. And that really is what Hermann does here. He isn't just doing a sound impression of Wagner. He's taking the thought behind something like Tristan and Isolde and really putting it into effect here. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, he's also kind of doing a sound impression of Wagner. <laughs> there are many ways you could make these connections, but I think the most obvious one is the big climactic resolution at the end of Tristan and Isolde, the so-called Liebestod, which means love death, which is another uh, resonant idea for this movie. That's right. The end of Tristan and Isolde is that Tristan has died and Isolde sings herself to death over his body out of love. She sings love, love, love until she dies. You know, a love death. A love death. Just your classic love death. <laughs> Descending from a suspension. Technically, I think it should be called an appoggiatura because it starts at the same time as the chord, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of semantic nicety. I think it's valid to use suspension as an umbrella term here. Great. But yeah, I think that big climactic moment in the Wagner was definitely an intentional inspiration for the big climactic moment towards the end of Vertigo. When she, you know, walks out of the bathroom with Vaseline on the lens, the, the big <laughs> end of this enormous crescendo that goes up and up and possibly higher, more, yet more crescendo, and then finally lands! Here she is! This is the singular moment of the movie. Yeah, so that seems like a pretty overt homage to the moment in the Wagner when there's this crescendo up, 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 and then it lands on the big suspension, and that's the big moment in the love death. Okay, so I have a grand theory of this score as well, and I don't think it conflicts with yours, and I think that our two grand theories can be united into a grand unified theory. I absolutely agree that we hear the Madeline theme evolve naturally and gradually into the obsession theme and that they are spun from the same cloth. But even so, there is absolutely a dividing line in the movie where the Madeline theme is the dominant theme for the first half of the movie, for the ruse part of the movie where Scotty thinks that he's following the real Madeline Elster. And then in the second half of the movie, after he thinks that Madeline Elster is dead and he is interacting with Judy, the obsession theme is the dominant one. There is a dividing line. And with a couple of exceptions, interesting exceptions, by and large, those two different themes don't cross that divide. One's for the first go-round of the story and one's for the second. It doesn't conflict with that at all to say that they're sort of made of the same stuff. But it's also, I think, really dramatically interesting the way that he creates this divide. And he plays a lot of similar things again a second time, you know, because a lot of the things that happen in this movie sort of get weirdly repeated. But 
they're played with different music. Yeah, and I think that that's worth thinking through what that choice is. Because if you imagine this assignment given to you, okay, the guy falls in love with a woman and then she dies or he thinks she dies and then he's obsessed with her image and can't shake it from his head and he's driven by an obsession with it. The simple, obvious way of dealing with that in music is you make a theme that means her. Right. You play it when she's around. Yes. And then you play sad versions of it when she's not around. Right. And Herman has had the psychological acuity to see that the thing that he is obsessed with is different from the person herself that she was. Right. That's the crux of the movie. And yes, the climactic moment when he finally forces Judy to dress exactly as Madeline did and she emerges from the bathroom in the green light. Mm -hmm. It is not a recapitulation of music from the first half of the movie. Even though it seems to be about returning to the past, it's not. It's something new and disturbing. Right. The whole point of that moment is that it is sort of Madeline reborn. She looks exactly as she did in the first half of the movie. And yeah, it seems like the total obvious thing to do, therefore, is to play her theme. But no. Right. Play the music from the restaurant that we heard. Right. That music from the restaurant, this beautiful melody... Well, after he thinks she's dead and he's kind of moping around and retracing his footsteps, he goes and sits in the same spot at the bar in Ernie's restaurant, and we don't hear Madeline's theme there. We hear other music. Then he sees her car. Somebody has bought her car. And we had heard so much playing around with Madeline's melody as we were watching that car drive around. And we were watching him follow her in his car. And he runs up to her old car. And pointedly, it is the obsession theme that we hear now and not the same Madeline music that we heard for the car. And then I think particularly strikingly, after it is revealed that this new person, Judy Barton, actually was the Madeline Elster that Scotty knew from the first half of the movie, and she goes in her closet and we see the iconic gray suit that Madeline wore, the one that he winds up forcing her to wear again. The suit's in her closet, and like my scoring instinct kicked in there. I'm like, oh, you gotta play the the music for <laughs> for that suit. It was such a you know such a close association. Really, like the temptation to play Madeline's theme at that shot. But yeah, it's such a bold and important dramatic choice to let that theme die. Because it was all false. Because it was all false, right. Because it can't be regained for both reasons. Because, you know, the past was a delusion and because it's the past. And this yearning to try and recreate it becomes its own story, has its own sound, has its own poignancy. Right. But the music doesn't have the illusions that the characters do to think that it can escape from this sort of tragic obsession by actually recreating anything. So I had thought previous to this watching of the movie that Madeline's theme really does die with the apparent death of Madeline, that we don't hear it again. But this time I noticed a couple of spots where we hear little snippets, little tendrils of it. You hear them and then you sort of hear them get intentionally squashed and unbent and, you know, sort of reshaped into the new material. 
after they go out to dinner and he's taking her back to her hotel room. I think you hear a little tendril of the Madeline's theme melody as he's convincing her creepily to get out of work the next day so he can take her on more dates. Thanks again. Good night. Can I see you tomorrow? Tomorrow night? Well... No, I'm in tomorrow morning. But I have to go to work. I've got a job. Don't go to your job. And what'll I live on? My oil wells in Texas? It's sort of a ghost of it. Yeah. It's a ghost. It's an echo. It's a fleeting glimpse. Thanks very much, but no thanks. No, Judy, you don't understand. Well, I understand, I... all right. But then, if you listen to what happens next, 17. you can hear the coat hook getting unbent. The next step is... No, no, no. No? Then what? We could just... Well, it's an interesting image. To me, the image, though, is that it's all just wisps of smoke, and, you know, sometimes the cloud looks like something, and sometimes it doesn't, and it's just constantly moving. Yeah, that's a good metaphor, yeah. So this wisp of smoke, you can hear it now twist into the obsession theme. No. It's not very complimentary either. I just want to be with you as much as I can, Judy. After it gives you this little wispy glimpse of the old Madeline theme, like they're on a date, he thinks he's found somebody that can call back the woman that he fell in love with before, and the music is there to say, no, 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 it's not that. So you mentioned that moment when they're driving together into the forest. That's when you first hear the Madeline theme sort of wend its way and turn into the obsession theme. That's the first time that we hear the obsession theme in the body of the score since the main title. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is a really important sort of architectural landmark. And I think it might be fair to say that's sort of a turning point. Now that he's actually interacting with her, Whereas everything before, he had been following her from afar. Now they're kind of going on this date together, as you said. That we hear the obsession theme there, I think it sort of signals, now she's got her hooks in it. You know, this is the actual beginning of his unhealthy, bizarre obsession. Do you know the name of the woods that they go to? The geographical name for where they end up? Uh, I will when you say that. It's the Muir Woods, named for, uh, what's the guy, John Muir. Uh-huh. Not for Muir Matheson, the conductor of the Not score? Not for Muir Matheson, the conductor of this score. Coincidence? Indeed, it is a coincidence for sure. Oh, okay. Because he only conducted it because there was a strike. Herman wanted it to be conducted in L.A. like everything else. <laughs> they had to go to Europe to record it. That's why he doesn't conduct his own score. Coincidence? <laughs> Yes. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Anyway, from there she proceeds to say all these bizarro, you know, <laughs> weird... Uh, <laughs> here I was born. Yeah. Here I died. She's really kind of laying it on pretty thick with this sort of <laughs> quasi-mystical hooey. Somewhere in here I was born. And there I died. It was only a moment for you. you. You took no notice. Do you think Gavin Elster was like, you know what would be great? You should go to where that sequoia was cut down with the rings. That would be so great. And then point at that. Or do you think she made it up on the spot? Because if she made it up, she's good. Well, she has to have made some of it up on the spot. 
Whose idea was it to go to Muir Woods anyway? I don't know. It must have been. It seems like it was his idea and that she was just improvising. But then at the end, he's like, oh, he told you everything to say. You were a very apt pupil. You were a very apt pupil. You were a very apt pupil. (laughs) I mean, she must have been a very apt pupil for her to just know that that would be a great line. You were a very apt pupil. You were a very (laughs) apt. Do that over and over. I was like, I'm going to say that on the show. And I guess you felt the same way. Me too. I wanted to say that on the show too. All right, you go first. You do yours. Let's do We just did it. We just did it. We'll do it again at the end we say it to the audience at the end all right that's a pretty that's a pretty great moment for pretending to be possessed is to go to that sliced tree yeah game recognize game there (laughs) anyway so this is a very climactic scene there's this great shot of the crashing waves behind them as they kiss this definitely i feel like it marks the end of an act of the drama The music actually lands on a major chord. It's kind of this false, happy resolution that in itself is sort of startling at the end of this cue. And then after that, there's this long scene with no music with Scotty and and his poor friend Midge, who is just trying to help and gets no music for her. What a sad character that is. Anyway, the next music that we hear after this climactic kiss with the climactic resolution to the music, the next music that happens in the score is a simple statement of the obsession theme played three times in descending octaves. And I sort of feel like that's another really important architectural moment. This is an announcement. Like, we're on the other side now. The Madeline part of the story is over. Now the obsession part of the story is what we're here to see. This is when he's really crossed over. I agree with the point about the architecture, and I agree with the significance of these things, but I am inspired to say... Mm -hmm. Remember back, I guess, when we were talking about On the Waterfront, I said, you know, I'm a little wary of committing too much to saying the themes mean things, and when those themes are there, those are the things that are being latched to. And so it's convenient for us to say it's the Madeline theme and the Obsession theme, but those are conveniences. The effect for the listener is not the word Madeline popping into their head or the word obsession popping into their head. You know, you're having a subconscious and evolving relationship with it. And I think in this movie, maybe more than any other movie, that's really crucial. This constantly evolving texture, it doesn't signify in a reductive way, and that's its power. Mm Mm-hmm. To take that a little bit deeper into interpreting the movie, the mystery at the heart of the movie or the thing that makes this movie seem potent and disturbing, like actually creepy rather than just kind of mystery movie creepy, is whatever is driving the Scotty character isn't exactly Madeline herself or even love itself or lust even. It's some kind of unfulfillable drive. Like, what is it exactly that he wants? You might well ask, why does he have uh, fear of heights in the first place? Like, this sort of psychological analysis of him is implicit. I do think that the movie is kind of pushing you to think, you know, what is this really about? It doesn't seem to be taking place right in front of us. It seems like it's happening at some deep and potentially disturbing psychological level. 
this kind of like constantly bubbling, growing, shrinking, stretching musical fabric, it has direct access to a thing with no name that the movie is really about. And that's what we're with. So, you know, is that really Madeline's theme when she first comes out? Or is it a theme for a weird feeling that she inspires in Scotty? And then is this really a theme for his obsession with the previous Madeline? Or is it a new, slightly more fiery version of that same weird feeling? Yeah, I endorse everything you're saying. I absolutely okay. think it's true that this constant sinewy liquidity yeah. of everything that he's doing is the intent. And it absolutely has this ineffable effect that you're describing. Nonetheless, I still think it's valid to point out this particular arrangement of four notes you know, we've heard it in the title music. We heard it in that one moment when they're driving in the car and the one melody evolves into the other. And now for the first time in the body of the movie, we hear it on its own, isolated, with no other context, you know, just sort of sitting by itself. It definitely felt like it was having an announcement kind of effect. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think it's not a coincidence, in fact, that it comes after the unscored scene where he sort of decisively rejects Midge's warmth and friendship and mm -hmm. her attraction to him, where she paints the parody portrait. And we, the audience, think, well, that's cute and funny. And he's like, no, I'm beyond thinking that things are cute and funny. <laughs> and then she yells at herself and it's painful to watch. And right. we feel like, yeah, he has descended into something deeper and darker than this. And then we hear this music like, yeah, this is where he is now. This is what's operative for him. Right. This is where he is now. That's absolutely what it said to me. I just want to talk a little bit about the effect of the whole movie being queasy because I think that the music deliberately tries to make you feel something like vertigo yeah. in various places on this grand scale of kind of a morbid psychological vertigo of like, oh my God, why are you trying to get something you can't have? But then also in a very concrete moment to moment way for the scenes of nightmare and just throughout. And one of the techniques I wanted to call out is that he will play the same figure at two different speeds. You know, in the opening prelude here, We hear this figure that is, you know, prelude from Vertigo. We actually don't really hear it later in the movie, except for briefly when she's getting her hair colored. We hear it, but this... Sure. For these spirals that Saul Bass has made for the awesome opening credits. Yeah, awesome. And this is a great sequence, don't you think? Oh, for sure. It's an all-timer. It's an all-timer, and this music is perfect, perfect for it. I think the use of it in that one shot of her having her hair done, I think it recalls the credits because it's a close-up shot of her face and her eye, like in the credits where we see the close-up of some other woman's eye and face, and that's what those spirals are turning around on top of, and that's what these musical spirals are turning around on top of. Oh, yeah, it's a great choice for that moment, and it's great that it yeah. just shows up there. I, I love everything about that. I guess I'm just a little surprised that he doesn't think to go back to this for any of the special effects. You know, he can't go up the tower because it's stretching into infinite space and he's got vertigo. We never hear this uh, blah, 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 blah. Right, the vertigo zoom. The vertigo zoom. For those, he plays these chords. He plays these kind of terror chords. He combines a bunch of different major and minor chords on top of each other for a nauseating effect. And then he's got two harps going just crazily up and down in opposite yeah. directions from each other. And it's funny, if you're following along in the score, of course, every note is notated in the score and it's very specific. And then it gets to this sequence and it's just these two gigantic angular hairpin squiggles for each harp that just means, I ah, go up and down a lot, go up and down a yeah. lot. <laughs> 
Yeah, just suddenly, like, Charlie Brown's shirt is in the middle of the score. <laughs> That's right. It does look like little triangles. Okay, so this technique with the different speeds. Like, here at the end of the credits, you hear a fast triplet. On top of a slow triplet. Dun, 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 dun. That has an effect. My stomach actually is aware of things like that. And then you hear that again. The next music you hear almost immediately, the prologue, this chase music for this opening chase across the rooftops before he falls and is hanging from his fingertips is at the same time as uncomfortable it's just uncomfortable to listen to yeah you get carsick because you don't know what to attend to yeah it's really like if someone's you know spinning the hypno wheel one direction in one eye and the other direction in the other eye and you want to throw up <laughs> so let's just address one other type of material that we really haven't... You mentioned it when we were talking about the gallery scene. Yeah, I teased it way back when I said I was going to get to the rhythm of the music underneath the portrait scene. So what about it? Well, he's marked it in the score something like Tempo de Habanera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a Habanera, which is a... Which is a Spanish dance. Yeah. Habanera is a Spanish dance with this rhythm. Bum, ba-dum, bum, bum, ba-dum, bum. very nicely chosen kind of signifier of Carlotta Valdez, this possible ghost that's possibly the great-grandmother of the character. I mean, she's supposed to be Mexican, right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, of Spanish descent. Of Spanish California descent. Right. Direct allusions to her life and her past and the ghost often have this kind of dum ba bum bump just usually on a single note mm-hmm. or on octaves going up and down and it's just such a simple way of bringing in ghostly haunting without overplaying its hand a really powerful example of when he takes that same rhythm but yeah makes it go up and down in octaves is the sort of maniacal version of it for his nightmare yeah which is when his disembodied head that I mentioned before is floating over these uh, psychedelic colored spirals and then he sees very spooky nightmarish visions of all the stuff that's happened so far and it's these it's like a grotesque exaggeration of that rhythm and there's I think even castanets in there which is a, a new kind of Spanish signifier but being used for their vicious sound quality. Mm-hmm. I thought we could just use this to talk a little bit about things being fake. We've mentioned this on prior episodes, like music can't really get away with being fake. 
even in a movie like this that's all about tricking the audience, the composer is not a trickster. The composer is an authority. And the ghost, Carlotta, is never an actual ghost. It's never really about her. And he has this nightmare, which is scored with all of this, you know, Carlotta music, Spanishy music, even though the ghost is not going to figure into the movie anymore. In fact, soon after, we're going to find out there was no ghost. Absolutely. We're going to be told directly by seeing a flashback of what really happened. And Judy writes a letter and then tears it up and gets to explain absolutely everything to the audience before Scotty finds out about it. You know, the music that gets played for her writing that letter, I think we don't hear this music anywhere else in the score. It's lovely. It's this, I feel like it's offering a high perspective. It's stayed and crystalline in a way that sort of nothing else is. I wanted so to see you again just once. Now I'll go and you can give up your search. I want you to have peace of mind. You've nothing to blame yourself for. Yeah, very pure procession of kind, almost religious chords. There you are. And it seems to me, though, that these sort of wandering parallel notes, they sort of recall the parallel thirds that played on top of the habanero rhythm for Carlotta's material. And now it's like that mystery of Carlotta has been solved. It's those coiled, tense, wandering notes flattened out, and it's a ray of sunshine on the spooky old tree at night. You see it in a new light, and it's drained of its mystery. I made the mistake. I fell in love. That wasn't part of the plan. I'm still in love with you, and I want you so to love me. I had the nerve, I'd stay and lie, hoping that I could make you love me I felt like that was a wonderful effect. Yeah, I thought it was a really smart choice, too. You don't hear it anywhere else in the score, exactly like you said, because it's the simple telling of the truth. Mm -hmm. It's the simple, like, I'm going to come clean, I'm going to fix up both of our lives and tell it to you straight, here's what's really going on. And then she tears it up because that's not available to this movie. That's not where this movie is going. And to have this other sound of, like, yeah, the truth, (laughs) uh, and you get to hear it for a second. But anyway, what I was going to say is every time we go back to the ghost, the Spanish sound, it is equally valid to see it as playing some turmoil that Scotty is experiencing. You know, even when he sees the ghost in his nightmare, he's having a nightmare just because of his sense of guilt and having had something stolen from him. He has a breakdown and goes to a mental institution after this. It's not because of a ghost. It's because he's uh, being nauseated by by the movie Vertigo that he is starring in. (laughs) And that's really what the music is ever doing. The music is doing something legitimate, even when it is about a lie. The music is not telling a lie. Uh, Maybe there's a better way of saying it, but I think that that's important. Yeah. To this extremely twisty, as we said at the beginning, this movie all about spoilers and layers of subterfuge. Bernard Herrmann knows how to stay with it, but also have his eye always on the bigger picture, the bigger psychological game. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Andy, let's get to this thing that I've been dreading pretty much since we started doing this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Having to make the call that we now have to make. Uh, It's a rough one. It's a rough one. You go first. (laughs) Oh, man, I don't know. I don't know either. You want to hear me go first because you don't know either. That's exactly right. Yeah. I called it, though. (laughs) So what we're referring to is that we both currently have E.T. the Extraterrestrial at the top of our lists of the scores that we've looked at so far. I'll give the top five that I have currently, and those go E.T. the Extraterrestrial, To Kill a Mockingbird, 
A Streetcar Named Desire, On the Waterfront, and Planet of the Apes. You want to give your top five? My top five currently are E.T., then Sunset Boulevard, then To Kill a Mockingbird, Streetcar Named Desire, and Planet of the Apes, which still looks pretty good to me when I look at it. Okay. Yes. We are now facing a very difficult choice between an apple and an orange, it feels like to me. Yeah. Are we allowed to just like, can we have like an inner circle of unassailably great scores that we just have at the top and just be content to say this goes in the inner circle? You know what a lot of people call that inner circle? The top 10. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I feel at a very genuine level, I feel that there is a neck and neck equal value here to E.T., which I was so praiseful of. Absolutely. Me too. And this. Yeah. I feel the same way. Both of them make the movie mean what it means. And that meaning is really valuable to lots of people and has been for years because of that music taking the reins. Oh, here's something I wanted to say about Bernard Herrmann. We're going to talk about him again, but this is really him at the peak of his craft. And I think he would have agreed that this is, if not his very best score, one of his very best scores. And what he brings to a movie is just absolute authority. His personality as a loud guy who did not allow for any disagreement. And was abrasive about it. Completely abrasive about it. You can hear all kinds of hilarious anecdotes about how mean he was to people, <laughs> uh, like how much he insulted the musicians that he was conducting. Counterbalance with stories about how he was, you know, a softy underneath with people that he loved and trusted. But yes, this is a guy with like a steamroller personality. Yeah. And that is a huge asset to a movie when filtered <laughs> into musical form. When Herman music is playing, you can't question it. It's like beyond, I couldn't even begin to question it. It's just there. This is just yeah. what is going on. And that block-like structure becomes just like a brick building that you feel completely architecturally contained in this solid brickwork. All right. So the apple and the orange is E.T. is just like virtuosic every which way. The orchestra is used in all these virtuosic ways. There's so many more notes, as you say. Yeah, there's more notes. I was grasping at straws too to try to differentiate them. And I have no idea whether or not it means something that one is better than the other, but there's definitely more notes in the score to E.T. There's more instruments, there's more notes, there's more themes, there's more, more, more. It's just like a bigger bouquet. It's all intricate. Each moment has embroidery, and it's not made of bricks. All of it at the finest quality, right. But yeah, this is made of bricks, and it's... It's got a classical dignity to it, because it is like a perfect architectural facade. It is one unified whole that is thought through really consistently. Mm -hmm. And I really admire that. And if you're talking about kind of the work and, you know, what is a greater work? It's an old-fashioned critical way of thinking. I think you'd probably say, well, you know, Vertigo as a whole is a more impressive single work because it's uh, it's a vision that that, that fits Do you together. have an answer for which one you're going to put on top? I'm just because talking because you told me to go first. So I just I know. am yakking while I'm trying to figure out what I have to say. Okay, here's what I think I'm going to say. Yeah. Here's what I think I'm going to say, John. Yeah, yeah, spit it out. When we said E.T., I was kind of psyched about E.T. kind of hanging out at the top and taking on all comers. And boy, we're, you know, we're just a couple down the thing. And here's, it has as good competition as you could imagine here. I think that maybe just on the more principle, I'm going to let E.T. stay on top and put this underneath it. And... It's just kind of a mood. Like on another day, I might feel like, but classical form is, and certainly in terms of Bernard Herrmann's influence and significance and this to stand for him. Oh, wait, maybe I talked myself out of it because 
I don't think I'm going to put another Herman score. Oh, I don't know. I mean, Citizen Kane isn't even on this list, and that's a fantastic score. Yeah, his first score was Citizen Kane, for crying out loud. His first score, an amazing score. He did so many amazing his things. His first score was Citizen Kane. His last score was Taxi Driver, which he died essentially the day after he finished recording it. Okay, here's why I'm putting E.T. on top. Okay, Here's why me. I'm putting E.T. on top, and I feel okay about this. Okay. Because... Herman is here doing something that most movies don't have the capacity to do, but that the Wagnerian forebear kind of did emotionally. It took romantic obsession and found something morbid and hypnotic and overwhelming in it and spun it out with great beauty. What E.T. does, as I said in that one, is it makes a musical equation between high romantic music and this contemporary suburban childhood setting that is intensely meaningful and feels to me new as of the moment of E.T. And is now super important in our culture, that yeah. kind of bridge between that musical world and that subject matter. Yeah, that's going to be why I leave E.T. on top, because what it does feels like it's born in that movie right there. Okay. I am surprised of myself to be relieved. I am surprised to find myself relieved that that is the decision that you made. Because it allows you to do it without feeling like you're making a mistake? <laughs> or it allows you to do the opposite and feel like someone covered the other base? Yeah, uh, could be either one. But, you know, I said at the end of last episode that I would often say that Vertigo was one of my favorite scores. In fact, I would often say that Vertigo was my favorite score. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason for that is... It is obviously one of the very best scores. It is great. I, you know, have written papers about it, and it's, uh, you know, we just spend a really, really long time talking about how great it is. Okay. <laughs> but I think that if I'm being honest with myself, I think at least some part of my having this sort of loaded, ready to go for me to say was my favorite score, at least some part of that is that, you know, it was sort of a more pretentious choice. You know, it was... Uh, <laughs> You know, it marked me as a student of film music and the history. And, you know, ooh, if I know about this music, you know, you wouldn't have thought that was going to be my favorite score. But, you know, it's uh, there's a little bit of a sort of classicist cachet to calling this out mm -hmm. instead of something that seems more surface accessible and populist like a John Williams score. Mm -hmm. But I think that over the course of doing this podcast with you, Andy, I've really come to embrace what for me I think is part of our mission statement to really celebrate the craft of using music to connect with an audience. And so if you're able to connect with an audience universally on a deep level with music of simply the highest caliber, you know, you kind of have nothing to apologize for if it also winds up being mega popular. It's kind of a field in which maybe the best thing should be the most popular thing. So maybe I can let go of that little guilty instinct to feel I need to reach for something with more quote-unquote academic rigor. Yeah, rigor is a good word for what this is much more than ET. This is rigorous. It is rigorous, and it's great, and I do love the rigor. But, you know, I got to go moment by moment. Is there anything in this that made me feel the continuous thrill of the bike chase in ET? I don't think so. That he was able to sustain that level of utterly delightful excitement for so long. I don't know. I love this. This is great. E.T. is great. I think I'm going to let E.T. stand on the top as well. 
which surprises my 23-year-old self, but what are you going to do? He's okay. He's going to be fine. Is he? He's going to be able to handle the surprise, certainly. Okay. Yeah, he had a heartier constitution. But make no mistake, this is like, it really is right up there with E.T., okay? Yeah, I mean, that was fairly arbitrary. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because after all, this is, what is it, Andy? Wait, what is what? Us making this ranking is... Absurd and pointless? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, it was absurd and pointless when the AFI did it, but they're in the business of doing that. (laughs) But they did it first, so... They did it first, yeah. Yeah, They get points for influence. All right, I think now is the time when we have our Jimmy Stewart off. Go. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I thought we were going to say it to the audience. We were going to say, like, thanks for listening. You, you've been a very apt pupil. You were a very apt pupil. You were a very apt pupil. You know, I think you're better than mine. Here, let's do it, like, two or three times in a row, back and forth, and then intercut that. I don't know. There's only so much you can take of that. Let's just do it a couple times, and we'll fit the real Jimmy Stewart in there somewhere. And you have to say which one is the real Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> You were a very apt pupil. You were a very apt pupil. You were a very apt pupil too, weren't you? You were a very apt pupil. I think we both did it better early in the episode, but okay. I think we both did it better than he did. (laughs) (laughs) Next time. Next time is another jump back. And I am really looking forward to it because as you teased at the end of the King Kong episode, this is the second oldest score now that we're going to jump back to. But it might have a lot more to offer musically than King Kong did. Yes, I think it does. It is Eric Wolfgang Korngold's score for The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938. Here is a weird connection between Vertigo and Korngold. Korngold's like one of his big achievements in his youth. He was like a prodigy and he was composing from a young age. And before he came to Hollywood, he wrote this opera, Die Tote Stadt, which is about a guy who is so obsessed with his dead lover that he remakes this low-class woman who's really nothing like her to look exactly like her because she looks like her. And then he has a nightmare about how he's falling into a whirlpool of morbid obsession. Wow. And basically Vertigo maybe is partially based on this opera. And it's by Korngold. Huh. I did not know that at all. Weird connection, right? Yeah. Totestadt. Does that mean death city? Yeah, the, the dead city. Huh. Check it out or don't. I probably won't. But anyway, that's my link up this time. Yeah, good link up. Well, coming up. So, boy, this was a good listening to film music we did this time, right? Uh, yeah, I think it was. I think we did a good job and I think we will do some more. <laughs> well, we did a good job listening to it anyway. I don't know how good a job we did talking about it. That's what I meant. Here, tell us so. Tell us how good a job we did talking about no, it. No, no, don't, uh... don't, don't invite them to tell us how good we are. <laughs> Just tell, invite them to participate in the conversation, which, I as you may have you... noticed, is not about whether we're good. That's never <laughs> what we talk about, so that's not what you should talk about. Talk about <laughs> movie scores. Yeah, talk about the movie scores that we talk about. And whether you think those scores are good. If you think we got it wrong, you think Vertigo should go at the top, and we've shown our true colors as Philistines, write in. Yeah, write in, leaving a review on iTunes. I'm told it really does help out in terms of getting the podcast in front of new listeners to have people reviewing it on iTunes. So uh, so that would be great. And then, yeah, chime in on Twitter at Scoresettlers. Thanks. <laughs> I assume you just did it. I assume you just now tweeted, so I'm thanking you for that. That's right, yeah. Hey, John, let's listen to some more film music next time. Well done, Andy. Thank you.